Hello and welcome to Belong's podcast on building inclusive societies. Conversations on caste and SDG 16. Goal 16 is dedicated to the promotion of peaceful and inclusive societies, the provision of access to justice for all, and building accountable institutions. I'm your host Muda Tarik and together in this series through conversations with academics, activists and advocates we look into how the debilitating institution of caste remains a great threat to sustainable development we will unpack caste politics and its problematic enmeshment with our democratic social legal and educational systems and try to understand how caste is a deterrent to the goals of social justice tune in to know more in this episode i speak to nikita sonavane a lawyer and the co-founder of criminal justice and police accountability project Nikita and I speak about how our justice systems do not merely reproduce the social hierarchies but are a living embodiment of patriarchy and casteism. We further discuss how caste manifests in the everyday courtroom and policing and explore the nexus between caste, coloniality and the law. Hi Nikita, welcome to the podcast by Belong. I am Muda, I work as an associate with Belong Research Collective and we're very happy to have you here with us. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to have this conversation. Tell us a bit about yourself, your background and your context and also if it informs the work you do currently as an advocate. I'm an advocate. I'm I'm trained as a lawyer. I've been based out of Bhopal for over 3 years now and I'm the co-founder of an organization called the Criminal Justice and Police Accountability Project. We are actually a collective of lawyers and legal researchers working on the question of the targeting of marginalized communities by the police and the idea is to look at police data to see how that can be utilized for litigation and other advocacy purposes to really draw attention to the brahmanical way in which policing in india is designed and functions to the detriment of oppressed caste communities particularly against communities that are known as the denotified tribes or the vimuktas designated as criminals by birth or hereditary criminals and i am someone who also decided to go to law school or engage with the law after having studied humanities so prior to studying law i was doing a ba in political science and i think a lot of my understanding of the law is situated within the context of law and society and seeing how the law builds and informs various social relations gradually i think as my own understanding and my own sense of my identity evolved as a person who belongs to an oppressed caste community i think that lens within which i also situated the law and its relationship with social structures became more and more informed by my understanding of caste because it was very evident to me that the sort of structure of power or the genesis of power in the context in which i am living or particularly within the south asian context is caste of course i think my own sort of understanding of caste and framework is the standpoint through which i understand and engage with these questions and it's also a framework that is constantly evolving and becoming more and more pronounced with time thank you so much for that so caste as you said is all pervasive i'm assuming that there's a casteist bias within the law itself so do you think 
it's important to have these conversations around caste and law so you mentioned how the institutions especially the police was targeting certain communities certain marginalized communities in yeah. your context and that to a great degree informed your work at the cpa project mm. would you say that caste and other social hierarchies are reproduced by these systems especially the criminal and punitive justice systems i wouldn't say these are reproduced by these systems i feel like these are systems that are in so many ways an embodiment of the caste system right because they have been designed to protect and entrench that system further the problem with the colonial lens of looking at our criminal justice system and the problems with it is limited because coloniality is something that was constructed around and adapted itself to like pre-colonial structures that existed or structures of power that the british worked into so for instance if we look at the systems of law or the sort of rule of law as if, as we understand it today that existed before we had a formal legal structure that the british put in place it was you have the manusmriti which tells you how people of belonging to various castes should behave particularly women especially when it comes to brahmin women how their sexuality must be controlled norms of honor so on and so forth manus dandaniti is in so many ways the origin point of punitive justice or any kind of carceral system that we we're seeing and we're engaging with right now the communities also that i work with in bhopal that sort of determination also of saying oh there are some people who are criminals by birth it has happened as a result of the marriage between coloniality and caste one is of course this whole idea of eugenics this racist anthropology to say there are people who are born criminals but again this kind of association of occupation by birth is directly derived from the caste system and to say that there are certain ways of living because a lot of these communities were also nomadic and semi nomadic in nature so these are communities that don't ascribe to the caste system and therefore are in so many ways posing a threat to the caste system because of their ways and modes of functioning the legal system that we have this includes the police these are all systems that have been constructed around this institution so the law and order function of the police is actually its social order function maintaining the social order of caste in present times when you look at records where you see ncrb records where you see that there is an over representation of certain communities within the criminal justice system it's a natural outcome of the way that the system has been designed that's the only possible outcome of that system there couldn't have been any other you mentioned how the systems that are in place are an embodiment of the caste system and then you also mentioned how the current systems that we have especially the legal systems they are influenced by brahmanical texts such as the manusmriti now when we talk about caste and we're also talking about law why is this conversation important between caste and law and how does it influence the day to day functioning say in the courtroom say in the district courts and even in your experience as an advocate how do caste and law interact on a daily basis i want to start from the lens of everyday policing people who are considered to be objects of criminalization and then who are the people 
that the police will arrest detain or people who are considered to be quote unquote in legal terms in the indian context will be habitual offenders these are all people that belong to certain communities right who subjected to surveillance who are the people that are constantly finding themselves trapped in this web of criminality these are people that are arrested by the police they will be the ones that will struggle to get bail we've seen several high profile people whose bail matters are listed on an urgent basis they don't have any trouble furnishing sureties who will bail them out but these are all people who are disproportionately arrested disproportionately detained so they will struggle to get bail they are also falsely implicated in so many cases we've seen this happen in several cases where people have found themselves on the death row only to be acquitted several years later and then discovering that they were actually people from oppressed caste communities who were falsely implicated in these cases in every way because you are termed to be like the object of criminalization or people who are most likely to commit crimes or have quote unquote criminal tendencies then automatically the way in which you are engaging you are treated by the system changes right when you are going to court there is no presumption of innocence that is attached to you there's actually a presumption of guilt and then just the financial costs the emotional costs all kinds of ramifications that come with criminalization are huge for people that come from these communities as opposed to those who have caste privilege or come with other kinds of privileges that interact with caste privilege right so we see that playing out on a day to day basis like if i can just give an example like we have a client who was accused of stealing temple bells and he was in jail for 7 months and his total bail amount was about 2 lakh rupees sureties this is for a daily wage laborer and when a sureties it means you need someone with assets to come and furnish those sureties right so obviously the family members of a daily wage laborers are not going to be landlords or they are not going to have any kind of support system who are going to be able to come and furnish those assets for them so i mean you see this happening and playing out on a day to day basis where there is a huge cost for people's life and personal liberty because they belong to certain communities what you said about the caste positionality of both people who are in power and the people who are convicted is very important but i would want to dial back a bit you mentioned how the current discourses on law are very much informed by the colonial experience and how the colonial experience also adapted to the social hierarchies of that time in fact reinforced them so when we mm. talk about caste and coloniality and law is there any specific example that you could give any particular act that highlights this interaction between caste colonialism and law very starkly the habitual offenders provisions are a great example of that because these are provisions that came into being as a replacement to the criminal tribes act which is a colonial legislation it borrows the rationale of the criminal tribes act without using those words and you see that the same set of people that were branded as criminals by birth are now termed to be habitual offenders which translates to being subjected to extensive surveillance people being tailed people being patrolled not being able to even go to the local market without fearing that they will be implicated in cases being picked up by the police it also means that being a habitual offender despite being acquitted by the court you can still be treated as a habitual offender because it's almost like the police has the powers to be able to do that and make that determination of someone's criminality even though the court has acquitted them 
we also see on a day to day basis how this impact all aspects of people's lives because you belong to certain communities that are termed to be habitual offenders or that carry this historical stigma people will not be given jobs children face discrimination in school so they are unable to finish schooling it's easier to implicate people in other cases because nobody is going to question that assumption right because it's very evident that this person is a habitual offender so they're likely to commit the offense that they've been charged for and just generally the way that so many laws are also designed they are designed to come down and criminalize like the traditional lives livelihoods and the ways of being of so many communities right there are communities that are traditional hunters but the wildlife protection act came into being which meant that now each time they want to hunt they're at the receiving end of penalization and face the risk of incarceration as a result of it communities that traditionally make alcohol consumption and sale and production of alcohol is constantly regulated by the state and that there are communities that are targeted for it it's just through various laws that you see that certain ways of being that are constantly criminalized right going back to the alcohol example we know that there are people belonging to privileged communities that both drink consume and sell alcohol but that is all under the purview of the law certain kinds of alcohol say mahua for instance here in madhya pradesh is an indigenous form of liquor and you will see that a majority of the cases under the mp excise act are for making mahua there is this entire sort of system that is constructed around it that's very important what you say about how the law is designed to further marginalize a section of people but i would want to be a bit optimistic and assume that some laws would definitely be progressive and an attempt to correct the historical wrongs is there any role that the judiciary plays in this compliant in somewhat diluting those progressive laws or are there no such laws in the first place the atrocities act there is the forest rights act the atrocities act came into being to recognize the historical violence that has been perpetrated against dalit and adivasi communities but it has one of the lowest conviction rates in the country the supreme court also said that this was a law that was misused there is a constant narrative of oh these laws are misused by these people that comes into play when there are laws that are designed to protect people from marginalized communities under the forest rights act you will see in 2019 some organization that work on wildlife related issues going to the court saying a lot of court and court encroachers have been filing claims under the forest rights act and the court well very enthusiastically even though it wasn't something that was raised by the petitioner decided to dive into the constitutionality of the forest rights act i'm someone who's worked on the forest rights act in gujarat and we would see this on a day to day basis that claims of people who have resided in these forests for generations whose lives are intertwined with the forest we would see their claims being rejected frequently and on a day to day basis laws that are designed to both protect like to recognize the violence against communities and also to recognize the rights of certain communities we see that both those laws are reduced to being mere paper tigers as citizens we turn to law to seek redress but what if the law as you said promotes a culture of impunity what are the resources then a common citizen has in place you would have worked with as you said a lot of communities who would turn to law for redress or for seeking retribution and justice and are not getting that then what resort does this common citizen have especially the marginalized common citizen 
I feel like there is a need for overhauling these systems and I think there is a need for people to resist and push back against them. And I think more fundamentally, there is a need to invest in building an imagination of justice that is outside of the framework of these systems. Because I think for a very long time, our ideas of justice have been shaped and been confined to the systems that we have been saddled with. But justice as an idea and as a way of being and as a real like living, breathing thing is not an institutional construct and cannot be reduced to being an institutional construct. I don't want to say this while saying, oh, these are all perfect systems or romanticize those systems in any way. But I want to say that there are communities that perfect, imperfect had their own ways of doing justice and dispensing justice, work towards building these communities and building these collective ideas of what justice and redressal might be. Because the situation that we are in right now, I don't think it's possible to get even a sliver of that from the institutions whose job description is to be doing this. The work that you're doing at Criminal Justice and Police Accountability Project, the CPA project that you mentioned, is, in my opinion, trying to remedy some of these issues. So tell us a bit more about CPA project, the the rationale behind it and the impact that you've been able to make. If we are saying that it's a system that is not working, firstly, ask the question of why it's not working. I think our identification of the problem is half-baked because we have identified it solely as a colonial problem. What we are trying to do through the police, because we think that's an important site of intervention, because these are people who are the entry point to the system and in the kind of times that we are living omnipresent. And so one is, of course, to talk about what is the sort of ethos of this system? What has this system been built around? And that's Brahmanism. We do that through looking at police data and doing empirical work. We are in the work that we are doing on a day-to-day basis as lawyers, as researchers, not just pushing for and asking for the system to do better. In so many ways, you might say that we are engaged in the quest for reform, but we don't see that as an end goal because we're also trying to ask the question of that if this is a system that has been designed to, say, oppress and to keep certain people under control, then what might it seem like to think beyond that system and to invest in an imagination of justice or redressal of harm that is not punitive and not confined to carceral systems that we are all a part of. That is the twofold objective of CPA project and and all of these attempts at doing this work are attempts at unhighlating caste or attempts to unhighlate the institution of caste because that's ultimately what it boils down to. So I think that is the kind of approach within which both our research and litigation and advocacy work are rooted. You mentioned the need to reimagine justice and how our ideas of justice are are formed by the current systems that we're living under and how there's a need to dismantle these systems and transform how we think of justice. My question to you is, how do you imagine justice? What are the alternates to the criminal justice systems that you have? You also mentioned how, say, the legal system, especially the police, works to maintain a social order and the crime then is perceived as against the state, not necessarily as against the individual. Then what are the different alternative imaginations of justice? 
I think what one the criminal justice system does is individualizes the question of harm, right? Which is that each time there is sexual violence, you will say, oh, let we have to put this person on trial, the perpetrator, and then accordingly punishment is meted out to that perpetrator. And of course, it's one person causing harm to another, but it also speaks of the larger social structures that enable that person to cause harm, right? And this system does nothing to address that. The other thing also that it does not do is that it in no way centers the harm that has been caused to the survivor. The moment criminal law is set into motion, it's the state that takes over, right? So the survivor is nowhere in the picture. What is the harm that has been caused to them, how they can be supported? Accountability is then reduced to being an individual redressal mechanism that the state is carrying out. And I think what is very important is to first think of ways in which not just individuals, but communities can be held accountable, because these are ultimately questions that speak to issues that are prevalent in society. So there is, of course, a lot of work that has happened in the American context with regards to both restorative and transformative justice, where transformative justice talks about how it's important to transform these conditions that enable this, right? So say, we have to ultimately think of ways in these which these systems of oppression can be transformed. Our work at the CPA project, we think that in Indian context, it's important to talk about Brahminism because all of these structures of oppression, ways in which violence is inflicted or inequality manifests itself as a result of the Brahminical structure that we are in, right? Any kind of quest for justice or any kind of imagination of justice has to be and the other way is also to what I was talking about earlier is to see how can we center the harm that has been caused to a person, right? Like how do you support them through the process and how do you make the process of addressing harm a collective process where people associated with both the survivor and the perpetrator are also assuming accountability and are holding each other accountable. So I think to be able to make the process of accountability also a collective process is something that is very important to do. One, take away this conversation, thinking about how we can invest in building collectives and collective structures around addressing that then allow for that harm to be addressed and very fundamentally how we can think of ways in which the sort of source of that oppression or the genesis of that oppression can be challenged and resisted I think is most important. The point that you said about the need to move away from criminal justice systems to restorative frameworks of justice where we put the onus on community, we build that support system for the survivor as well and to overcome these bigger factors that lead to the crimes that happen in our everyday lives. Now we've seen how there are identity biases within the system within the judicial system precisely. Are there any examples that we can learn from in how to address these identity-based biases within the judicial system? Or anything from your experience as a lawyer, how do we address these questions of identity and law? I was saying earlier that the criminal justice system likes to individualize questions. So the question of violence by the system is also individualized in so many ways to say that, oh, it's an individual police officer who has resorted to custodial violence or killing someone or an individual judge who has been discriminatory. These are not individual problems. These are design questions and these are questions that are central to the way in which the system functions. And I think that sort of understanding is important because in, in the Indian context, when we say 
we talk about policing and we talk about the criminal justice system we will say caste and the criminal justice system or caste and the police but it's not two sort of systems that are operating independently and at some point interacting with one another through the medium of individuals and the prejudices that individuals might carry right these are all systems that are built on each other and are intertwined with each other the law is something that is built on caste that is the superstructure of that so i think what they have managed to do with black lives matter and generally talking about abolition in the us and drawing attention to these systems of carcerality and the way in which as a society we are restricted by carceral ways of thinking and being is something is a great example and i think something that we have a lot to learn from Yes definitely thank you so much for this conversation and these examples my final question to you is that within the caste discourse that we're seeing in india and is there any similar discourse around abolition of policing or how to find these patterns of oppression there is work of course that has happened if we look at starting from dr ambedkar's writings and drawing from that there has been a critique of the rule of law and social order but i think in terms of work there are people who are doing this work and are centering the question of caste within the legal system there are organizations like seed who have been doing this work we still have a long way to go because i think still in the quote unquote mainstream discourse it, there is always the risk of reducing caste to an aspect or among many other aspects as opposed to thinking through that framework if you found this podcast interesting download our mobile app unother spelled u n o t h e r for more conversations and literature on intersectional inclusion If you would like to connect with intersectional experts visit Belong Circle a platform that makes it easy for a wide range of organizations and individuals to be intersectional in their work thank you for listening stay tuned for more